0: Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each episode, we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, Please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Robin Swicord's new drama, Wakefield. Adapted from a short story by E.L. Doctorow and starring Brian Cranston and Jennifer Garner, Ms. Swicord's film tells the story of Howard Wakefield a suburban lawyer with a loving wife and family. Though outwardly successful and happy, his inner feelings of suffocation lead Howard to snap and disappear without a trace. Hiding in his own garage attic, he survives by scavenging at night and spends his time secretly observing the lives of his wife, children, and neighbors. In addition to Wakefield, Ms. Swicord's credits include the feature film The Jane Austen Book Club and the short film The Red Coat. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Swicord spoke with director Leslie Linka-Gladder about filming Wakefield. During their conversation, Ms. Swycord discusses what inspired her to adapt the E.L. Doctorow short story into a feature film, how she was able to shoot the film at a blisteringly fast pace of only 20 days, and how her instincts led her to cast Brian Cranston in the lead role.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Leslie, and I am very honored to be talking tonight with r- the amazing Robin Swicord, who is both the writer and the director of this film, and um, I saw the film a couple of weeks ago and was really blown away by it, by the performance and by the point of view of being inside this one character, and Robin, I'd love to, to talk to you about where the the, I know it's based on a Doctor O short story, but how that process came about.
2: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for being here, Leslie. Leslie is somebody I've looked up to for so many years. It's a really a thrill for me that she agreed to come and do this. Thank, um, you. thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, approached E.L. Doctorow about the short story. I had seen it in The New Yorker in 2008. I loved it. Somehow I felt a kind of hook when I saw it. I actually had a, a, the weird experience of when I was reading it, seeing film images and thinking that there had already been a film made of this short story, which didn't make any sense because it had just been published. So um, a couple of years after that, Elliot Webb, who had been an agent at ICM and became a producer, uh, brought me a couple of E.L. Doctorow short stories and said, is there anything here for you? Is there something here that you would be interested in doing? And there was Wakefield and I went, oh my God, there's that movie, uh, there's that thing I wanted to make into a movie. So um, he and I, he could introduce me. He he knew Doctor O. And so he introduced me and we started corresponding via email and talked on the phone some. Then I went to New York and met him. And he allowed me to kind of take the short story and run with it so that I didn't have to formally option it but he agreed that, you know, he signed a piece of paper saying that he wouldn't sell it to anybody else for a couple of years because they knew it would take a little while to get something as odd as this movie off the ground.
1: And it's such a n- unique story, and the way you've told it through you know I- is is was very profound for me i mean the you know having a story where one small thing happens, there's a power outage, you know, and it changes your life forever <laughs> <laughs> the, the trigger
2: incident yeah. yes
1: yeah and and y- so when you started to adapt it. Into a screenplay. I mean, you are both the writer and the director. So, you know, you—how long did it take you to adapt it, and, and what was the process of of you know moving this toward production? And how? And was Brian Cranston, you know, what was the process of attaching him? I can't imagine any other actor playing right? this role after seeing the film.
2: I know this belongs to Brian. Something that I knew from the very beginning, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in terms of you know writing it, I mean I, I've, I've written so many screenplays at right. this point that I, I don't have to labor for a really long time to understand like, what am I making here? You know I, I had a very strong sense of the film that I wanted to make, and then I, I wrote that film. And so that process was more or less January 2012 to March 2012 to, to get a first draft. Wow that's.
1: But you've written for... But, you but
2: I've written... But, you know, I've yes. got writing muscles, you know, yes. so it, it wasn't... It, you know, it, it isn't that I solved every problem. I still had a lot of questions. That was just draft one. That was just like, well, this is what I have, you know. And so I showed it to Dr. O, and he gave me some of his thoughts. And I, one of the things he... He felt that I had made a character who might be considered to be mentally ill, and he didn't, he didn't want, want that. Mm. He really very, very strongly felt that... Howard Wakefield was a man in crisis, certainly, yes. but that he had not, in a kind of conventional sense, become mentally ill. That he had gone to a place that any of us could go without actually literally losing our mind. And so um, I respected that, and I I made m- very small adjustments. One of the, the adjustments that he suggested, I didn't actually do till the editing room, and he was so right. Mm. By that time, he was already gone. He He died the summer before we started filming oh. and so I, n- I never got to call him up and say you were right about that by the way um, so after I had the, the script I, I, I brought it to Deb Aquilla who now works for Lionsgate but at that time I you know was available for casting and,
1: and a great casting She's director a,
2: exactly I have worked with her several times on movies that that got made and movies that didn't get made and so she was kind of my go-to person. Since since she went to work for Lionsgate, I've now met Amy Lippens, who I think is also an incredible casting director. And she, she ended up working with me on this. But Deb made a very short list. I told her the kind of actor that I was looking for. She knew right away that we needed a, r- a real powerhouse person, somebody who wasn't afraid of taking a risk, someone who played the comedy part of it and also the serious part of it. And you know, somebody who would be willing to come and, and, and do something that was this odd, you know, a person who uh, as a kind of like cinephile in a way, like, well, this this is, I can't think of another movie that's like this, so yeah, why not? So, Brian was at the t- very top of that list. But the problem was going to him first, as my producers who I gave it to, Julie Lynn, who I'd worked with on the Jane Austen Book Club, and her partner, um, her business partner, Bonnie Curtis, um, and they said, well, you know, this movie is probably between three and five million. I think that we have to be realistic about h- who we want to ask
1: all of these questions about okay. production because she made this on, and I think the movie looks incredible. And dealing with all four seasons, so I, w- you know, we have to put that later. And <laughs> I want you to talk about all. Of I, that.
2: I I will. I'll talk yeah. about it. Yeah, it was. We ended up, as you'll see, shoestring. But at any rate, um, what Bryan Cranston was worth, quote unquote. Uh, in the open market, that is to say, the international sales market was about a million two at that time, and our first budget came in at about three. And that, and they said, so if you made this with Brian Cranston, you're not you're not going to shoot nights, you're not going to build your attic, you're going to be shooting practical locations, you're not going to get the seasons, you're going to probably have to set it in L.A. You know, there were all these sacrifices that were on the table if I insisted on Brian Cranston. And so I knew a couple of things. First of all, I knew that that my friend Jay Roach had cast him already in Trumbo. And I had read the script for Trumbo, and I figured he's gonna get a nomination for this. So yes, you can take a minute, you can do some other explorations with other people that you think will bring us more. But in the back of my mind, I knew that we were gonna go back to Brian. And so it was really just an exploration. I don't think anybody else ever read the script, honestly, because if you are one of the few people that can get this movie, you know, financed at the drop of a hat, if you're going to do an art house movie, you're going to do it with the Coen Brothers. You're not going to do it with an unknown female director. And so I figured, well, we'll we'll throw some sand down a rat hole for a while, and then I will go back to Brian. By that time, maybe he will have won an Oscar. And so um, he did not win an Oscar. He got nominated. He did win the Tony for All the Way, which was the Broadway show that he was doing when I went to meet him, and he agreed to do the, the film for me. Um, and he also, Breaking Bad, opened in Germany. And all of a sudden, in terms of foreign sales, it was a lot closer to $3 million. And so we just had to figure out, how can we do that? How can we make this movie for not quite three million? Wow!
1: And so having the patience and knowing who you wanted, who right. you saw, and the instinct that—I mean, he's a brilliant actor. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, it's his role. Trust your period. instincts. Yeah, exactly. Always a good one, right? But also, I had to listen to my producers. They worked really hard yes. on this movie, and producers are truly, as we know, the unsung heroes. Oh. And so, if what they said was, "We've got to make—we're trying to make your life easier." And so we're gonna make try to get our life also to be easier. We have to do this exploration. So it's pointless to like, you know, stick your sword in the sand and say, you know, no, it's gonna be this. You know, you, you have to let everyone have their process. And that is w- why they call this a collaborative art form. Right. So right. They they have to do their thing. Because at the end of the day, we ended up making this movie in twenty days. That's and incredible. That is really hard when you yeah. are the producer.
1: So how did you, there's so much I want to ask about Brian and your process of working with him, but how did you make this movie in 20 days with the seasons, and was that a set that you, so you built the attic, but?
2: Well, it's a it's a lot of different pieces, and this is, I mean, the, the real story of how you do this in 20 days and have it, have, get all the seasons and all of that is that you have to do an enormous amount of pre-planning. And in a movie of this size, you get four weeks of paid pre-production. So there is a lot of other work that has to be done. So you were working way ahead of that. We were working way ahead in terms of problem solving.
1: But you had Janine Oppenwall. You had amazing people. We work had
2: with Janine you. Oppenwall. Yeah. And Janine Oppenwall, well, the truth is, not just Janine Oppenwall. I mean, Your I, I had team. the whole yeah. team. My whole team was incredible. When you shoot in L.A. and you have access to the crew base that is here, you get geniuses and miracle workers. That's who shows up. And a lot of my team actually had just come off of the Revenant. And they were looking to do something at home in January, December, January, which is when we shot. That meant they were home for the holidays. They wanted to be in the bubble of love after being through such a hard shoot
1: on the Revenant. And that's, <laughs> bubble of love. That's what I could well provide,
2: put. believe yeah. me. you know, a Very happy set, in well spite I, of us never sleeping.
1: I went to never the, the cast and crew screening, yeah. and it was a bubble of love. I have to say that.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, on my first movie, Jane Austen Book Club, I'd been on enough sets with movies that I had written but did not direct, where I had seen the crazy happening. And I just knew that I had to hire the non-crazy, right. that my litmus test was, are you loving, are you kind, are you sane, and do you know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, and, so, and if you didn't hit every one of those boxes, then I did not hire you. And so I had a really good team, and, and a bunch of people were available from that team who, and came and helped me again, particularly in props. Th- those are the people that were really available um, were props. But also I had a lot of the same grips. They were fantastic. So, technically, what we had to do, because we had to create Connecticut, and we had to do it in Pasadena. Right. So, um, we did not have a train. We soon realized there was not going to be a train. We were going to have to pretend there was a train. And my first AD, Kim Winther, who was a guy that worked worked with Roland Emmerich for a long time, for like 15 years, and he made, you know, he sort of specialized in making movies that take place in 26 countries and that kind of stuff. So I actually needed a first AD that was that capable who could make this happen. And he said to me, what about train Town? What about going to Griff the Are Park to train Town?"
1: Tra- you mean...
2: We really? went We went to train Town. That scene at the beginning oh when he's on the God. train... I love it. Those little cabooses that they let you have your birthday party in? (laughs) Janine Oppewall clad the outside so it looked like Metro North. There were no seats inside. She put two red seats. I had seen a photograph at MoMA once of people commuting with all these men in fedoras kind of pressed up almost against a window and a little child kind of trapped between the bodies. And I had that on my phone, and I went, that's how we're going to solve it. We're just going to crush people up against the window. We're going to shoot him. We'll put the camera on a gimbal, we did the lights, we had a little magic, you know, gaffer magic going by, and everybody jiggled like they were on a train, and we got away with it. So it that was totally the deal. did, oh my God. And so that was the name of every single thing that we did. Wow. We found a house in Pasadena that was beautiful, it was surrounded by windows, so you could always be looking in. Inside that house was a lifetime's worth of collecting of beautiful objects and furniture. All we had to do was edit. We got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of production value out of this lady who lived in Pasadena who let us shoot in her house. Why? I can't imagine.
1: But thank goodness. Thank
2: goodness. <coughs> Behind it was a, gar- a, a garage that had a maid's quarters above, so it was crowded. There was a bathroom. There was a little kitchenette. You couldn't shoot up there. We couldn't demo that. You know, we were... That was not going to be our attic.
1: But was that the window?
2: Well, we put a window on. You put the window We put a window on. But then when you looked at the back of the house, what you saw was this very nice garden with a blank wall and a tiny clipboard-sized kitchen window. So the house was everything except you couldn't see into it. You can see into every angle of that house except from the back. And Janine Oppelwald, production designer, and I stood there looking at this with my DP, who was a fantastic DP, Andre Baden-Schwartz. I met him when he was in film school when he was 19, and I stalked him for the next 10 years. He turned 29 on our set. Wow. And he is a brilliant DP. He was brilliant in college, and he just got better and better. So... We stood there and we looked at it and just kept looking at it like as if by, if we stood there long enough, a window would (laughs) materialize. And it did. Well, we realized I had this like, one of these crazy ideas where I went like, you know what, that whole blank wall is like a movie screen. Why don't we just, we can't project a window onto it, but we could migrate a window onto it. We could go shoot the window someplace else. We could put that on the back of this house. And that's what we did, we shot that kitchen in Altadena and we migrated it in post. We shot plates and we planned for it.
1: It's seamless, I mean I would have never known that.
2: Yeah, Ivy Aggregun yeah, was our, via, was our VFX person and she was the one who was responsible for the Revenant and she is incredible, incredible person to work with. And so she, she figured out all the logistical stuff She found Russians who would help us do that part of it. In the editing room, my own editor, Matt Maddox, had spent 10 years doing BFX before he became an editor. And so he just did like a little mock-up of that with his own little Afterworks toolkit, you know, so that when we were editing, we could, you know, we could edit to something that looked kind of like what it was going to look like. But because we got that, there was a scene that was really important to me in the film. And we were not going to be able to get that because it required a company move. Because in all the little places that we were shooting, there was no place that had a basement where we could shoot the scene with the kids next door. And my producers, who were fantastic all all the way, but they had to ask, they had to say things like this. Uh, and one of the things they said was, this is on the bubble for us. We don't know if you're going to get that scene because we don't have a place to shoot it. If we find another place and we can't shoot something else there then that's a whole day, and we don't have a whole day we only have twenty days and so what happened when we found that house in Altadena that had the kitchen window is they had a basement so we See got we, we, we compressed all of that stuff the night and the day shooting of Jennifer and the girls in the house and then we had two and a half hours to go downstairs and get that and our department had to Clean out that. I mean, you, people, no one had been, they just like had stuff in there, you know? And they, they made that happen
1: overnight. So speaking of that, which is incredible to hear, like how you pulled this off, uh, in having a film that is so completely in one character's point of view, like everything he's making up the dialogue for his wife and child and children you know it's all about him and how he sees the world how did you work with him on that and and Jennifer Garner who did an amazing job who we only hear his version of what she's speaking
2: all right so I'll talk about Jennifer first because I feel like in a lot of ways she's kind of an unsung hero I think that she is, has been undervalued uh, by the film business in terms of her acting ability. She's a phenomenal actress. I've always liked her. Um, I think that because of the sort of tabloid fodder of her life that she has been kind of um, turned into a celebrity without people noticing that she's actually an extraordinary actress. And she signed on to do this because she really wanted the challenge. She liked the idea of trying to put over a performance through two different layers of glass. And she um, she works in a really precise way. She's very prepared. I wrote a shadow script for the house.
1: Oh, so she had a whole script? She had a whole script uh,
2: that had character arc, relationship arcs, you know, for everybody in the house. Um, and I even built in things to it so that the things that they are saying and doing in the house kind of run counter in some cases and an I- there's some ironic tension between what he thinks is happening and then what they're saying. But that was all for them. That's all for them to have the kind of deliciousness of that. So they would have something to really play. Sure. And Jennifer herself is a parent and she just immediately bonded with Victoria Bruno and Ellery Sprayberry who play their daughters. Right. Um, and they made their own little family. So it was, you know... For me, not hard to work with them. It was a matter, in some cases, just of modulating, of like, can you take that cross a little faster? Or I think you're maybe not quite as upset here as you are a little bit later. You know, just sort of signposts like that. But she understood what she needed to do. And as long as they were playing what I had written for them more or less... They didn't have to worry about hitting marks, where's my key light? You know, n- not wearing a mic on your body. It was very natural acting right. because they were just doing human behavior and relating to each other and getting to to play in a sense as if you were almost in an acting class together. And she found it to be great. She said, I could just do it, you know, give me weeks of this. This so kind of great. how she felt. You know, yeah. I, I could just do this for weeks. <laughs> but she also came and did stuff was there sometimes um, for Brian to have a a relationship to and certain kinds of key scenes to help him out. What he had to do was um, also kind of extraordinary. I'll talk a little bit about working with him, you know, in terms of getting into the role and all of that and then working with her to create the marriage. But I just want to point out that technically what he was having to do was look at a monitor... That showed what was happening in the house. I, w-
1: I was going to ask, then what was wha- he looking at? He
2: was looking at a big monitor that you know was like a, another thing I had to like trade for with my producers to get playback on set, right. so that he could look at what he was going to be looking at, because then once he went inside our little space capsule of a of a uh, set that, that Janine had built for us. Uh, he had to go to the window and look out at a camera and a tape mark on a concrete wall and you know, all kinds of crappage, you know, grippage, crappage um, hanging down. And he had to then play in his mind what he had just seen. And I saw it especially in the editing room, that there were times when he would lose the thread and he would reset. I would see different thoughts in his mind because he would have gone back to like an earlier point in his memory of what they were doing. And then I would get like another little mini take in there because of that, you know, but he had to hold it all and give that performance, so it was it was an extraordinary
1: feat for him to do that, and so he wasn't watching when he was doing that he was not watching the video no of he them. couldn't
2: because monitors give off their own life oh, for course, one thing, and course. the other thing is where would they go I mean, the window w- yes. is only so big, and the camera's huge, right you know.
1: So it was. So he had to remember. Basically, he was playing. He had to
2: remember. And so I st- was off to the side giving him signposts as well. Sometimes yes. I would whisper his voiceover stuff. We recorded that stuff four times at different times in production so that I would always be harvesting his increasing understanding of what was going on with his wow. character. So I knew the pace at which he was going to be taking it because I had listened to him. And so I would try to give him that pace so that he would know when when to shift, you know, when to shift. he's
1: alone so much of the movie, so you're basically yeah. dancing with him a right. lot of the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there was trying to feed him what he needed and also setting up, this is what's going to, this is what's just happened, this is where we're going from here, because we... We were shooting in that way that Sidney Lamette often worked, where it was like, okay, everything that's in this light, we're going to do. So it's this scene, it's this scene, and it's this scene. You oh, know.
1: I see. So you weren't you weren't able to shoot chronologically? No, no.
2: I wish we could have. It would have made yeah. his life a lot easier, in the sense that he wouldn't have had to been out of in and out of so much
1: facial facial hair. hair. And yeah. I
2: had incredible people who did the makeup, you may have noticed. Yes. Zoe Hay. I mean, seriously.
1: Um, amazing. Zoe Hay amazing. did all the facial hair. Wow.
2: She and Erin um, um, Kruger, she's got another name in there, but I always just call her Erin. I'm sorry to to be blanking, but anyway, Erin was incredible, and they worked together and designed that, and Robert Wilson did the hair. So they were Wigs and wig pieces, little little wefts that he would weave in because we didn't have the money to do a whole lot of different heads, you know. But he was, the, that was an extraordinary team. And Brian's face was raw from going in and out of cement, alcohol, cement, alcohol. And he has a <coughs> sensitive skin anyway. But he was, you know, he was game. And they were game. And, and I would say to them, okay, how long is this turnaround? And they would say 45 minutes. You could take that to the bank. So we would go and do whatever we could without him for those forty-five minutes, and then you know we would then we would have him back just like clockwork. They were they were phenomenal.
1: That's incredible. And then the few scenes like the kids next door were amazing.
2: Yeah, that was great. You know, Isaac Leva is the is the boy. Yes, he was extraordinary. Um, He came into his. our auditions. I saw a lot of really wonderful Down Syndrome kids who were actors. All of them were actors. Wow. Um, and there's a little community of people here that work with Down Syndrome kids. Mm-hmm. who, And they Glee used a lot of people, offered them a lot of work. Um, and he had been on Glee as a kind of background person. He loved to sing. But he came in and put his hand on his heart and said, Herbert, and I mean it was just I, I seriously he, he had me at hello, you know. I was yeah. just like I, I didn't <laughs> wow. want him I did not want him to leave the room. I loved him so much. Yeah. So and he's he's a he's a very fine actor, you know, he, he, he really prepares, he thinks it through, he he has big emotional responses to his environment, to things that he's seeing around him, you know. He's a sensitive, beautiful guy. Um and then Peppa Bennett Warner, Amy Lippman um Lippens brought me. Mm-hmm. She's an English, mostly stage actress, although now she's on Harlots, which is, a, I guess, um, a, a cable uh-huh. show. And she, you know, she worked all the time. She works a lot in London, but she hadn't worked much here. And I had to audition her over Skype, which I do, oh. do not recommend. <laughs> no. I want to tell you. Yeah. But she's, she, and she worked as a local. She literally lived in my house for the week that she was here and was such a good sport about it.
1: That's so amazing. Um, and, and so the process of working with him, with Brian, was such an intimate one. It know.
2: was, because he works in this beautiful way. I mean, he's like a, a writer's dream come true. And I've actually wrote a little piece, which is coming out and written by a magazine, which is the Writers Guild magazine, um, <coughs> which is, will come out soon, which is about the strange thing of not allowing writers and directors to, be writers and actors to live in the same space in film. In theater, when you're theater trained, you're always working with actors because they constantly make your work better. So, I mean, Nick and I laugh about the fact that when we wrote Matilda together that we heard casting tapes for the Trunchbull and immediately rewrote a bunch of Trunchbull scenes. The the thing of being able to hear it aloud with an actor is everything. And And it's... it's not built in, you know. So with Brian, he works very close to the text. He works through every moment, every image, every line of dialogue, questions, ideas. He pitches stuff. He's always improvising and thinking about stuff aloud, which is his way of getting down under the skin of the character. A ton of stuff that he suggested actually entered the film because it was, he was so in tune with the character. So uh, we built up a lot of trust doing that. And then um, I was worried about how do you make that marriage when we don't have any time really to rehearse? And how do you rehearse when you only have a couple of scenes where they're in the room together? Um, and I had seen Afternoon Delight that Jill Soloway wrote and directed. And she had taken um, um, a little mini course, like a weekend course or something, with Joan Shekel, who is a person who teaches I guess directing and acting as well. Um, and she... Taught this way of working with actors, where you create relationships through these intimacy exercises, and so I went and I took that little course from Joan a couple of years before I ever directed, maybe three years before I ever directed. I think I just finished draft one, and I thought, you know, as soon as Afternoon Delight came out, whenever that was, I went over.
1: Under one Sundance. A, a few years yes, ago, he yeah, before she I did, mayb- did Maybe
2: 2013 wow. it was one. So I went and immediately took that thing, and I learned those exercises. And then I just went to Jennifer and Brian said, I want to do this. And we got permission to do it in the house where they were going to be doing it, That's in the bedroom where they were going to have their fight. And it was great. And it involved just a lot of laying yourself bare, a lot of physicality, not in a kind of like, ooh, sexy way, but, you know, just touching, smelling, looking, giving up that personal space right. between each other.
1: Cuz how do you rapidly. create that relationship?
2: How do you get people very casually undressing in front of each other and fighting at the same time and not have it look stagey, you know? So it was it was really valuable to have gone and taken that um, that thing with Joan Shekel because um, I could introduce them to it. And it gave them touchstones. So there were certain little phrases that they came up with in, in those exercises. So they go away. We shoot for three weeks. Now it's time to do their scenes together. It's just an add water situation because they have the touchstones. And all I had to do was say those words aloud. And it brought them back to the memory of being in that room and doing this with each other.
1: That's so great. That's so great, because what a challenging film to be doing because of that, because they don't have a lot of time together.
2: Right, no time. I mean, seriously, that was their, quote, rehearsal.
1: Right. Yeah. And they're together then the very last scene of the film, which, yeah. of course, we don't see what, comes on, what happens after that. I'm like, no!
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, I never gave Brian the shadow script, so he, he really he didn't know. All he knew is that he walks in the house. He didn't know what he was going to be seeing when he walked in the house.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So she had, of course, she had the script, but he did not have that script.
2: That's right. He still hasn't seen it.
1: That's kind of incredible. Yeah. Yeah. What an amazing job. And what a, uh, a fascinating process you went through to make it for the amount of money you had and to make that an opportunity rather than... Uh, something that was negative, like you had to find the way to make that work
2: right, that was the great thing about everybody on the crew. It was never, oh my god, we can 't do this. It was all right, okay, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to solve this? How are we going to do this right It was a com- that was everyone 's attitude about it, and that that 's how you get it done and it was they were there were really i mean honestly, there were some really crazy, crazy things that, that happened because of that, but you know we we all survived it, everybody's still alive.
1: <laughs> That's right. Everyone's so alive. And there's something about being in the room with the smartest people you can be in the room with.
2: Yeah, I know. It was a blessing. I mean, I think everybody was... It's like when you go through something really, really terrible, you know. You're all snowed in together on a train wreck or something, you know. <laughs> if you survive that, you just love everybody that yeah. you were in the train car with, you know. So, we had that.
1: So, I'm getting the sign that we have to end. Um, thank you so much, Robin. It's such an incredible piece of work. And thank you. bravo. And, you know, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.